0: No the right no, house I did it again We want to talk, and talk to
1: Marilyn Hack I'm from Canada water making money and living well was all that mattered and no one did it better than sherman mccoy now he was a master of the universe
0: calm sorry collated let's not lose our composure over a few hundred million dollars no one could resist him not his mistress he could be the best sex I've had in a long time not even his dog it's raining and he's not happy about it mr mccoy here am i bill I, on the other hand, was a reporter in need of a
1: story. This is Peter Fallow, the has-been. Oh, Chante! In need of a spark, which is exactly what I got. Wait, wait,
0: wait, wait! It's a body. It looks like it's an animal. No, no, no! I, I think is it it, dead? it's dead.
1: It, it's a tire. The dead all. tire. I turned that spark into
0: a flame. Hello. Thank Hello and welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast where Sigourney Weaver shows up for two minutes for the sole purpose of looking askance. Every week on This Head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my co host, Joe Reed.
1: Chris, how are you? i'm
0: uh i'm okay yeah this is our first uh, episode recorded while in uh social distancing yes
1: i said i said chris we need a real escapist movie this week we need a movie that tells the story of a new york city in social chaos uh constant disarray and you know as foreboding and threatening as possible that's what i wanted
0: uh well I mean we got a real uh we're in a kind of a real dumpster fire of a situation uh, globally uh huh kind of a dumpster fire of a movie truly truly we
1: wanted I've been wanting to do this movie for quite a long time I feel like I would sort of like just pop pipe in every once in a while just like we could do the bonfire of the vanities who said that that's a good idea I don't know who said that but I support that I,
0: I gotta say like this is kind of a movie that I'm surprised that more people still don't talk about because this. I was expecting to just, like, absolutely hate the experience of watching this movie, but I thought it was fascinating. It is kind of failure. fascinating, yes.
1: It's, it's, it's amazing that—and you feel like only a director like De Palma could have charged forward with such a failure, because, like, he's— He's better than this, but also you could see him just being like, "No, we're doing it. We're just fucking doing it." And yeah. famously, he was like interfered with by uh, by Warner Brothers at like every turn. They made him cast Bruce Willis when he didn't want to. They made him cast Tom Hanks when he didn't want to. Um, I forget who was supposed to be Melanie Griffith, but it was like somebody else. And
0: they offered it to a couple other people, like Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm,
1: I see. I see. Yeah. Um, but it's just. And of course, the the it was. I think this was much more of a frequently talked about infamous failure, like ten, twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think other. I'm trying to think of like what other disasters kind of like put it aside because like it's rare that you know so much about what goes wrong on a movie than you do with this one. Obviously, the famously there was a book written about it, and but yeah, every major role seemed to have roles that or actors that De Palma wanted to have in the role. And like total like like conceptions of the characters, like he wanted the judge to be this like Jewish American Alan Arkin type and I don't yeah,
0: know. Yeah, cuz that's what it is in the novel. Yeah. This is my question for you. Have you read the novel? Oh no. I've only Neither read one I. Tom Wolfe novel ever and it
1: was the one um that he wrote more recently about the college campus whose title I am right, right, blanking right, right, right. on um I remember the cover was
0: mostly purple
1: mostly purple right and it was this like very thin gloss on like a duke university kind of a thing and mm-hmm. it was about like um you know college campus stuff and 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 you know interactions between the sexes and racism and all this sort of stuff and it was written as such this like arms length remove from somebody who seemed to fancy himself as knowing very much about what how things go and this sort of like faux insidery tone and the language was so um particular and arch and like i guess literary but like in this very kind of false way that i was like this is either a choice in you know you're trying to make a point here or you are just like completely like head up your ass about all of this stuff. And I think my I think I walked away being like Tom Wolf is up up his ass about this kind of thing. <laughs> and like maybe he wasn't always because he what what, he wrote like the right stuff or something like that, right? He's like yes. very, yes. very like, you know, famous and, you know, probably rightly lauded author. And I should read more of his stuff to have a more well rounded opinion than um I can't remember Every time I try to think of the title of that novel, it comes back to The Adventures of Jezebel James, which I know is not, like, but it's something like that. It's one of those, like, there's a name in the title, I think, maybe, and it's sort of, like, long and a little tortured. Um, (laughs) But it's not The Return of Jezebel James. Um, The famous Amy Sherman Palladino short-lived series with Parker Posey and Lauren Ambrose. Do you remember that at all? I do not, Uh, but why don't I? I don't know. It was a Fox sitcom that lasted, like, two episodes. I will happily hunt this down while I
0: am locked in my home.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, put that on the the quarantine playlist.
0: The thing about... The, one of the reasons that I'm happy we're doing this episode is it's been a while since we've done a literary adaptation where it's just, like, this exists in the This Head Oscar Buzz universe purely because it's an incredibly famous novel that gets a movie adaptation and people immediately start talking about those type of things mm-hmm. for movies like that. Mm-hmm. But, like, this novel was so fucking huge in the 80s like it's been called the quintessential novel of the 80s it was a big deal and like in the way that like it was such a huge novel that it's like this isn't just a this had oscar buzz movie like this right. had everything buzz movie like
1: i am charlotte simmons that was the title of the book sorry oh okay <laughs> we're done We're done talking about that. um,
0: But, like, uh, immediately it attaches, like, huge names in Hollywood, like Mike Nichols, who passes on it, and then it gets handed over to De Palma. And, like, there's this idea that you have to have huge stars in the movie because they're such unlikable, finger quotes, characters that they are largely despicable people in this movie. It's such textbook
1: studio casting too because the movie comes out in 1990 and the three stars are like the three biggest rising stars of 1988 where it's like tom hanks oscar nominated for big in 1988 melanie griffith oscar nominated for working girl in 1988 and then bruce willis does die hard in 1988 so it's like the biggest box office star plus the two rising sort of like you know respected actors kind of a thing and i guess hanks was still sort of fighting for respect he was still you know kind of the turner and hooch guy
0: doing goofy comedies right big still i do find it fascinating that both melanie griffith and tom hanks were oscar nominated the same year for like dramatic comedy performances and then end up in this movie that really can't figure out how much of a comedy it is it's like after satire it's doing it's like after um it's like every oscar year
1: where like some big new talent comes along and then every time there's a role open, somebody'd be like, Oh, Jennifer Lawrence, put Jennifer Lawrence in that, put Timothy Chalamet in that. And it's just like Yeah. Not every up and coming, you know, hot new actor is perfect for every big role that's coming up. Like the world isn't that serendipitous. And, you know, a lot of times you have to work a lot harder. And so you end up with I think Tom Hanks could have done this role really well. Like five years after he made this, in a better movie, in a movie that had a better sort of like handle on its own sense of satire, I well, think he's-
0: and has a better point of view on this character too, because it feels like it's in this really weird place where the movie's trying to do a thing with this character, with the character like with Tom Hanks playing him, like they're trying to make some type of creative leap here mm-hmm. of like. Uh, using his like there's that shot where he has that like maniacal grin that is so bizarre in the courtroom yes yeah that it's trying to use his persona in a way that like mines it for awfulness mm-hmm. um that like I did actually find interesting I don't know how you felt about that
1: I don't I thought it was an artifact from I a I different anybody... better movie
0: yeah, yeah. It feels, like, so close to the thing that it is trying to go for, but, like, with no grasp on how to achieve it. Yeah. And I don't think it's the actor's fault at all. This is the kind of movie
1: that loses me immediately with this endless five-minute-long tracking shot following uh, Bruce Willis and Rita Wilson as the, the um, sort of publicist guiding him to this speaking engagement that he's at and he is She's in this
0: huge like affectation voice like this whole introductory uh-huh. sequence everybody that speaks is speaking with this like heightened character dialect yes. that like tells you what a satire it is and it's supposed to be this broad thing but the movie's playing it like visually very straight or like with an air of seriousness about for the it. moment
1: yeah we don't get to the really weird like up people's nose angles until like later in the movie but yeah, it's just like right now the ostentatious shot is the tracking shot and every scene seems to have a different kind of like ostentatious visual element. He brings back that scene from um Oh no, wait, I guess it wasn't The Untouchables, it was Goodfellas, so that wasn't his. The scene the thing where you push in the camera and you and you zoom back and it looks like the background is um, mm-hmm. rushing in on the character he does that at one point it's like in a hands. vertigo shot he does a lot of these very sort of like obtuse angle low angle shots on like the guy who's supposed to be l sharpton and all this sort of stuff but so uh the the back to the beginning shot for uh a second because you have this like long tracking shot and as you sort of go along you figure out who we're following it's obviously bruce willis but he's this like Sort of hard drinking, sexually harassing enfant terrible, and he's like, and he's an author, and it's just like, oh fucking of course, like this is like coming off of the eighties, the era of the like bad boy writer author kind of person who's just like, which is such a um, self-aggrandizing. I don't know. I always feel like this. It's this sort of Brad Easton Ellis thing of just like, aren't I such a bad boy kind of a thing? (laughs) And I know we're not supposed to strictly like Bruce Willis, but the Every time the movie centers on him, I hate it so much.
0: (laughs) Okay, so as far as the miscasting stuff goes, because a lot of the complaints about this movie and part of the reason why it was considered such a failure is how miscast everybody said that it was based off of the novel. Yeah. Again, like I can still feel like what they're going for in these castings, and like it doesn't not work for me. But Bruce Willis is the problem, I think. Like Bruce Willis, in the um. In the book about the making of the movie The Devil's Candy, they talk a lot about how Bruce Willis was basically an asshole on set. And um, like Julie Salomon reports that he was like, you know, trying to like rush
1: production. After having been
0: forced on the production by the
1: studio is the other thing. Yeah. Because clearly they were like. Just leave the movie. Yeah. Well, and then like (laughs) the trailer, which we just, we both watched before we started recording is so Bruce Willis centric like he narrates the whole thing yeah. and it makes it look like the story of the movie is how this reporter got this story and it's like too much of the movie is about that but like the the grand majority of the movie is about Tom Hanks's character getting sort of you know railroaded or not by this justice system this very cynical justice system that is out to you know nail a rich white person in the Bronx for political purposes, which, like, there are ways to do that that seem less
0: racist. Like, this movie... Yeah, this movie is, like, very interesting to watch now, because it is, like, there are certain privilege concerns that we're definitely having larger discussions about, yeah. yet this movie's portrait of black people is really racist. Oh boy. Yeah. The, like, the horde, you know,
1: teeming mob in the in the courtroom the sort of like easily manipulated mother of the victim played by Mary Alice who like i hate to see Mary Alice sort of wasted on anything this bad because be she's like a very gross
0: al sharpton caricature For that sure. feels like such a stereotype and i think some of this problem is largely because this movie doesn't have a firm grasp on its satire and like right. it doesn't kind of smartly pick and choose its battles um, with how to portray things and then to cast
1: Morgan Freeman as the judge as your sort of get out of jail free card and have him like literally lecture the entire courtroom on what justice is what racial justice is like it's such a yikes Mm
0: mhm I don't know. I mean, Morgan Freeman has like notably talked shit about this movie. That he was when he showed up on set, he was like, "Oh, this is going to be a disaster." <laughs> um,
1: what? All right. I, before we get into, because um, I'm going to have to do a, a plot description, and I'm not looking forward yes. to it. Yes. What is the single worst performance in this movie? I want to see if we're on the same
0: page. Oh boy. I mean. I want to say it's Bruce Willis, but, like, everybody's doing huge things. I feel like some people might have answers that I would very much so disagree with. Uh Uh-oh. Because it's performers committing to what they're being told to do in a way that, like, I don't think it's their fault. Um, Are you going to tell me you liked Kim Cattrall? I'm not going to say that I liked her. I think that she is... Doing what the movie is trying to do again with this whole like arch, like like it's some type of screwball comedy affectation. I couldn't look thing. at her. I couldn't
1: look <laughs> at the screen while she was
0: performing. I felt bad
1: for her. I felt bad for her, but I also feel like you talk about people who didn't have a handle on the satire. I don't think she did either. Like I think,
0: oh, see, that I think performance she thinks to she's me doing something. Like,
1: and she's I very think much she not. was
0: told to do something or like was cast for doing a certain thing.
1: I guess. It's just so affected and so
0: alien. It's so strange. Like ugh. It's exactly what everybody else, these like bit players that just have one scene is doing, but she's in a good chunk of the movie, so it stands out more. See, I think somebody like a Beth Broderick
1: is doing better, is doing that without being such a weird alien about it, while still, like, I mean, the script for this movie does that Beth Broderick character really dirty, where it's just, like, all of a sudden mm-hmm. she's just, like, photocopying her, like, vulva on a, on, you know, in the middle of a scene with Bruce Willis for, like, no reason, and yeah, she's sort of, like, she's this weird, like, little, like, turnkey of the plot, but while she's being a turnkey of the plot to, like, I guess keep the audience's attention, she's just, like drunk and like sitting atop this photocopy machine and it's very strange and gross and but I'm like I, but I think within those parameters I think she's playing this sort of like heightened character without like being insane about it I don't know she's just in the most insane context I think Melanie Griffith if the accent were not a thing Melanie Griffith's accent is ridiculously terrible in this but I think otherwise I think she's playing the archness of what this is supposed to be mostly correct.
0: Yeah, because it's like you're talking about her ridiculous accent that feels like it's supposed to be ridiculous, but what she's actually performing is something different. It's like she's, she is her character performing that dialect, if it makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. It does um, make sense. I do think Melanie Griffith probably comes off best in this, or maybe F. Murray Abraham in terms of doing. Yes, I think F. Murray what Abraham. What broad satire is that doesn't like gel together at all.
1: F. Murray Abraham, who hated this movie so much, he took his name off of it
0: because he wanted above the title um, billing, which is for insane.
1: It. <laughs> given the is size it, of his oh, role, he's a, he won best actor. Yeah, but given the size of his role, I think that's insane. I think at best he's like an and F. Murray Abraham. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean like that's probably what he wanted. But but Morgan Freeman's going to get the and given the nature of that role. Maybe he's a with with F Murray Abraham and Morgan Freeman. I don't know, but like, yeah, it's just oh, it's such a mess. What a mess.
0: We need uh, these have like died in recent times. We need more with and casting. We
1: do absolutely. Titles. What was, I was just thinking of something, something was brought to my attention recently, where it was like three or four widths. Um, (laughs) Shit. What was it? I'll think of it. But like, I love that kind of stuff, where it's just like, and I know Avengers did that very much too, where it was just like three widths and an Did
0: Jason Statham get an and credit on Spy?
1: Oh, that's very interesting. That
0: up. seems like a perfect one if it doesn't exist. Um, I'd look it up, but the keyboard on
1: my laptop that I'm working on right now is completely dead. And Listeners, probably...
0: tell us your favorite with-and credits for movies. Uh, I love when a with-and is like a complete 180 from the one before. Explain. Like your with credit is like... Maybe a schlocky like television. Oh, where they're like they're on the rise, and and is like and Judy Dench, uh uh-huh. right? Where, where they like... don't make sense together, right?
1: Right, like with uh, <laughs> with Judy Tenuta and Gregory right. Peck, like something like that,
0: with Ian McKillen and Jennifer Hudson. <laughs> Wait, was that Cats? Uh, I think think jennifer hudson might have gotten an and credit i forget amazing Um, i always love with and introducing with ian mckellen and jennifer hudson yes introducing francesca howard
1: yes that's what it was with francesca howard of course um what is the one now the um the hbo movie uh i know this much is true Oh, God, where the entire poster is like from. Academy Award nominee, Emmy winner, Emmy nominee, Academy Award winner. And then there's like they got one for everybody. I remember being like there's no um, outlier, whereas like even Catherine Hahn got like Emmy nominee, Catherine Um because, oh, back when I was at the Atlantic, David Sims and I, I had David write something about like. Um, movie credits, because the Judge trailer had just come out. And that trailer was, like, Academy Award nominee Robert Downey Jr., Academy Award winner um, Robert Duvall. Shit, who else is in that movie? Um, Uh,
0: Vera Farmiga. Right,
1: Academy Award nominee Vera Farmiga. Um, And I remember it went through, like, the whole thing. God, I can't type anything. I can't bring anything up. This is so annoying. I hate this so much. Never have your laptop keyboard break, because you can't fix it. It's so stupid. All right, Yeah, uh, Academy Award nominee, Vera Farmiga, Academy Award winner, Billy Bob Thornton. I guess that was everybody, because it was like, and it wasn't an ad, it was just like Vincent D'Onofrio. And I was just like, oh, that's sad. Poor Vincent D'Onofrio. He doesn't
0: have a Golden Globe nomination.
1: I don't think so. He's done telly. Let's see, what's the best Vincent D'Onofrio has ever done award-wise? The Cell. (laughs) Yes. Primetime Emmy nominee, Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series on Homicide Life on the Street is his top-notch awards moment. So yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio is uh, a fully overlooked performer. Jeremy Strong was in that movie. He's going to be an Emmy nominee probably this coming year for uh, Succession. Obviously, Leighton Meester will win an Oscar sooner or later. Grace Zabriskie should have several Oscars by now.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: God, the cast for the judge is infuriatingly good. Like, wow, talk about a movie that doesn't deserve its cast. Anyway,
0: anyway, love that with the vanities. Yes, bonfire the vanities. Oh my god! Uh, uh, Once again, yell at us about your favorite with and casting. But today we are here to talk about Bonfire of the Vanities, directed by Brian De Palma, written by Michael Christopher, adapted from the Tom Wolfe novel. The movie stars Tom Hanks, Melanie Griffith, Bruce Willis, Kevin Dunn, Kim Cattrall, Morgan Freeman, F. Murray Abraham, Saul Rubinek, a ton of bit players that you will recognize, like Rita Wilson. Rita Wilson. Um, this is the um. This is uh. We're here on our first COVID recording. That uh, I know. Get we well, Tom and Yeah, Tom and Rita.
1: It's so sad. I couldn't, like, oh boy, when that news came down, I was just like, well, they, you know, they got the best of us and we're all going to have to
0: trudge on. The picture of them together was so wonderful. Once again, Tom and Rita are the example for love for all of us if they can't make it work none of us can make it work also we need to be protecting the other couple like this protect lulu and barry at all costs <laughs> yes oh my god for they sure they are not allowed to get sick uh back to anyway, the cast for the... a second did you oh, yes.
1: notice kirsten dunst on your own or did you have to see her name in uh, the yes
0: cast list? uh first screen credit performance of Kirsten Duff. I was just like, wait, that daughter looks familiar. Hold on a second. As and the gotta... daughter of Tom Hanks and Kim Gattrall. Naturally. Naturally. Yes. Exactly. Um, the many bit players in the movie. Yeah. But yeah, the movie opened wide uh, Christmas weekend. I don't know <laughs> quite what I want to see with the whole family uh-huh. or to escape my family more than the bonfire the family. I suppose yeah. it's... I guess somewhat akin to the Adam McKay, like Vice Christmas release of it all. I also think back then, like
1: you know, you just open a big movie at Christmas. It doesn't genre genre probably wasn't paying into it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Joseph. Yeah. Before we proceed in talking about the movie, yes, would you like to give us a sixty-second plot description? Sure. Why not? Okay. Why not? well, your 60 second plot description of bonfire of the vanities, the vanities starts right now
1: so tom hanks plays this guy named sherman mccoy he's a wall street trader he's sort of a master of the universe type and um not a great guy he's having an affair uh cheating on his wife with a woman named maria ruskin played by melanie griffith and a hilariously terrible southern accent they he picks her up from the airport. Um, and they're driving back into Manhattan, and they've got to get into Manhattan. It's, you know, very important they get back to Manhattan. And they take a wrong turn, and they end up in the Bronx. And the Bronx is like the fucking Warriors. It's just like 30 garbage seconds. can fires, and they, they get lost in an alley. And these two guys try to rob them, and Melanie Griffith freaks out. And she runs one of them over in the car, and they go back to Manhattan. And they feels like they've gotten away with it. Tom Hanks is a little guilty, but whatever. Um, it, uh, it, it Eventually, uh, the, the victim um, is able to uh, identify the car, and they get, wow, I fucked this up so bad. I fucked this up so bad. Um, I'm not even going to get into the part where Hanks gets arrested. <laughs> and that's your
0: time, because that is the only way to devolve a 60-second plot description of Bonfire of the Vanities, is just repeating, I fucked this up so bad. You have become... Brian De Palma.
1: I had didn't I haven't movie. I literally haven't even gotten past like what you would find out in the trailer. <laughs> like they arrest Hanks, Bruce Willis
0: uncovers the story, it's a whole like trial, oh god, whatever. The it, thing is, this movie is just a lot. Like, you can't really even reduce it down to the plot because if I told you the plot But it's not even that complicated though. That's the other thing. It's not like this densely
1: packed, like, you know, yeah, mystery or anything like that. It's a very simple plot, and yet all of the paraphernalia about it is so, I don't know, weirdly important to what happens.
0: Yeah. Like, I don't know. But it's basically like a, a privileged Wall Street guy does a hit and run in the Bronx and fi- not fatally injures, but like it, it, it runs over the in a, coma. a black kid yeah, yeah. and he's in a coma and... They try to just, like, get away with it, write it off, and then it becomes, like, a media scandal, and they catch him, and then it's a trial, and...
1: Right right from the break, you can tell we're not on solid footing, because when they turn that corner, and Hanks has to try and move the tire out of the way, and then the two guys come, and they're gonna mug them, the tone of that whole scene is so muddled, and is so sort of, like, half-measured, where it's just, like... Are they there to mug them? They sometimes seem like they're like you almost seem to at some point expect the one guy to be like, No, your tail lights out. I was you know what I mean? Like one of those things. It's just like yeah. you thought I was here to threaten you, but really I'm here to like inform you of something innocuous. But that's not what's happening. They were actually trying to mug them. But the tone is this so like weird like neither fish nor fowl thing, where it's just like it's not necessarily super threatening. And because we're supposed to believe that on some level Sherman and Maria are overreacting, and they are, but they're still getting mugged, and the movie can't quite, like, circle that square. They can't quite come to the idea that just because these two guys are mugging this couple, that, you know, it doesn't mean that you deserve to, like, run over one of them with your car. And mm-hmm. I guess she doesn't run him over, she, like, hits him, whatever. Um, and so they have to, like, sort of soft-pedal this mugging a little bit and it's just weird. It just comes across as the most, again, I use the word alien a lot in this movie because like the tone is so strange that it's just like, Oh, this like nothing about this is recognizable in any way.
0: Yeah. And the only thing keeping it from going entirely off the rails is that like the delivery of the movie is kind of, I don't want to say blah. Cause it's, it, or like, straightforward because it's a De Palma movie. Right. It feels like it takes a good maybe hour and twenty minutes for it to become a De Palma movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Where it becomes this kind of like grotesque like composition type of thing. But it's like it feel they feel so divorced from each other like what the visual style of the movie is and the like broadness that everything, of everything else. And there's also a level of the broadness that like even for what this satire is feels like the most obvious way to go about it. Yes. And it's never, like, they're trying to be kind of funny and, like, stick it to the ribs of, like, rich people on Wall Street. But it's not funny. It's not. And like all of the sexual politics of the movie. The one are funny, very cringy. The one funny part about the whole, like,
1: you know, poking fun at the rich or whatever is the scene where Hanks has to go out and walk the dog at the beginning. And he's like dragging this little dachshund who's like playing dead essentially um, through the like marble floored lobby of this building that he lives in. And I was like, okay, that's funny. I sort of laughed at that. But like everything else is either way too over the top or weirdly flat like he has mm-hmm. this he's supposed to have this like very fraught relationship with his father where his father was this sort of like you know took the subway every day was a wall street guy but did it in this sort of like more upstanding you know greatest generation kind of a way and we hear we we get all of that from like willis's voiceover mostly and a little bit from like sherman telling this to other characters about his dad but like we don't see that in the relationship between them. Like Donald Moffat plays his father, and I really like Donald Moffat. He's you know great character actor. He was Moffitt. the president in uh, in Clear and Present Danger when Harrison Ford goes, "How dare you, sir?" That that my favorite part from that trailer. Um, but I like there's nothing on the screen in their relationship that suggests any of this stuff. It's very sort of like weirdly flat and stiff. I thought.
0: It's just that, like, Donald Moffat makes sense as playing Tom Hanks' dad. Yes, that is true. Like, makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. De Palma is also very interesting because, like, when you look at De Palma's career, I would not ever maybe attach him to this type of material or this type of satire. Like, obviously, a lot of his movies are, like, known for, like, their sexual politics or, like, violence um,
1: homophobia like, hit, transphobia I think that kind
0: of thing uh, sh- yes all of it yeah. um especially prior to this movie but then you have the untouchables which right. does well with oscar gets sean connery his oscar oddly doesn't get one for doesn't get a nomination for brian de palma even though the movie was a hit and like it got multiple nominations well just the two but yeah No, it got... uh, Hold on, let me pull this up. I think it got like four or five. Oh, did it? Maybe I'm mistaken. It got got four nominations. What was it for? It was uh, supporting actor, art direction... Costumes and score. It had a Morricone score. Gotcha. Because I'm looking... It got nominated. What's that? (laughs) A Morricone score will get you nominated.
1: Yeah, very much so, or at least usually. Um, Because I was looking at De Palma's um, Oscar history, and... It's a lot more sparse than you would expect from a director of his stature. Like he, mm-hmm. you would expect that he would have had like one movie where it would have been, you know, the the, you know, best picture nominee and multiple yeah. uh, nominations. I guess The Untouchables is as good as it got. Like he gets that one nomination for The Black Dahlia, the cinematography nomination, which I always thought was so strange. Um, Carrie gets the two act, the actress and supporting actress nominations, but that's it. Um, he got a couple early. A score nomination for Obsession in seventy-six, a original song score nomination for Phantom of the Paradise. But like that's pretty much it. Like even something like Carlito's Way, which you would have thought would have been the perfect opportunity for him, for Pacino. Like it's it's it came the year after I'm pretty sure it was ninety three. I think it came a year after Pacino won his Oscar for Scent of a Woman. So I think it was the alright, you know we've we finally gotten Pacino as Oscars we can take a we can take a break now
0: yeah and even like casualties of war which did well with critics um you would think that they might go for that that's a really rough movie
1: yeah um, carlito's way it's still amazing to me that Sean Penn didn't get nominated because he was raved for that performance and it was one of those um career inflection points for him where that's the point yeah. where he went from 1980s Sean Penn Madonna's husband, Spicoli, um, casualties of war, like this kind of thing, like the young people roles. And all of a sudden he shows up in Carlito's way after sort of being away for several years, unrecognizable under that like wig and the glasses and whatnot, um, playing this like very flashy supporting role. Critics loved it. Critics really liked the movie. And ultimately, it didn't get anything. Like that movie did not get a thing at the Oscars.
0: And. Maybe we can eventually do a Callitos Way episode, we could. which I would have to see the movie. Me
1: too. Because I've never seen it. Um I think I've seen parts of it on television, but never the whole thing. hmm Um so yeah, it's interesting that De Palma's never had that sort of, you know, moment.
0: And I think it's because largely a lot of his movies push a lot of, yeah. like, like I mentioned sexual buttons and violence buttons, where it's like, he's the type of director who is revered and is, like, a very well-respected auteur that, like, I'm sure there's some examples of it now where... If you just don't push those buttons with Oscar and make them feel like prudes so that they don't vote for you you put them in the right movie, like A Bonfire of the Vanities, they're, like, primed to support you. Yeah. Provided you don't make a disaster like Bonfire of the Vanities.
1: I think if this movie is boring rather than obnoxious, I think the Oscars might go for it, even if it wasn't good. Yeah. Because it had all the ingredients and it was sort of, you know... I bet you, though, I don't know if people were doing, like, a year ahead Oscar predictions back in 1990, but if they were, this would have been, on paper, absolutely top of everybody's list.
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, it definitely would have been in the conversation, like, while this was in production and stuff, simply on the back of how huge the novel was. Right. Huge novel, De Palma,
1: you know, only a few years removed from Untouchables. Like I said, the whole Hanks, Melanie Griffith, 88 Oscars thing— yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, again, look at something like The Goldfish that was just last year. I'm trying to think if we have a big, like, novel adaptation this year. No, The Woman in the Window does not count. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, what's it called? Um, Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, that's, a like, a
1: famous book? I mean, people were really talking it about Zina. it. I think that was at least, you know, I think it was a very talked about book.
0: People are being real optimistic about what that
1: movie's. Oh, be. I don't even think people are being that optimistic, but I do think, like in terms of like, I think people have sort of like become a little cynical about big novel adaptations at the Oscars because
0: yeah. of you know recent failures. Once again, the Goldfinch. Um yeah. But like, definitely not for this era. No. So um,
1: this the timing of this movie is also very interesting because it's nineteen ninety, and you know, symbol symbolic or not, this sort of like almost like a funeral for the 1980s a funeral for the like mm-hmm. um sort of excessive extravagant obnoxious wealth of the 80s a funeral for this like conception of new york city i know new york city didn't really like quote unquote like rebound until later in the decade but like by 1990 it was less of the um you know sort of hellscape that 1970s and 80s new york was often described as and Mm -hmm. you know we were you know still in the sort of like post reagan era because george hw bush was still president but it felt like things were moving away from this and like this movie definitely feels like it's looking on the 80s with very recent hindsight but like some bit of hindsight
0: Yeah, like, you could imagine if there was some distance, like, they hadn't leapt to make a movie of the novel so quickly, that a good version of this movie could exist somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's possible. Although I think
1: it's very telling that uh, in the last, like, 10 years or whatever, 15 years, basically in the 2000s, we're getting a lot of Philip Roth adaptations and no Tom Wolfe adaptations. Mm-hmm. And
0: I definitely well, if Chuck Lorre apparently wanted to make a mini series out of Bonfire of the Vanities. That I don't I see. I don't think that's happening because I think that was announced like four years ago. That's fascinating. So that's not
1: happening. That's super fascinating.
0: Um, but I, 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 I don't always know sort though of put... if you look at this Oscar year, like it's totally believable for this to for Bonfire of the Vanities to like fit alongside some of these movies if it had gone better for the movie.
1: In terms of the 1990 Oscars? Really,
0: yeah, it's a really fascinating Oscar year. Oh, it is. It's like, the things that they go for, like, all of the stuff with Godfather 3, which was still seen as a disappointment at the time, and you ask some people, it's still a bad movie. But they're, like, nominating things like Dick Tracy. Yes. And, like, Al Pacino could have feasibly won for Dick Tracy. Right, that was still the, when he was, like, when is the up was so huge. Yeah,
1: when is Pacino gonna win? And so... They were like, well, he's such a, and it's such a big performance too. I love that that got nominated. I love that, you know, and and Diane Ladd for Wild at Heart's the same thing. It was just sort of just like, wow. Mm-hmm. That like David Lynch was such a, you know, for a time Oscar sort of weird Oscar darling, actually. And that something as, I don't love Wild at Heart, um, but like watching Diane Ladd go off in that movie is like one of, the most peculiar pleasures of watching movies and
0: oh absolutely and
1: then ultimately the 1990 Oscars settle back on a very sort of familiar a few familiar sort of like tendencies of theirs one of them is this sort of like you know sweeping epic another one is actors as directors another one is um, sort of white savior narratives as this sort of like feel-good, Thing and that all comes together in you know in one movie and dances with wolves and mm-hmm. I can't imagine there was much doubt that that movie was going to win big that year. Given there
0: had to, I mean, Goodfellas was. I mean, I bet if Goodfellas was less violent and less extreme, it could have been Goodfellas. But like Goodfellas was probably its closest competition. Right,
1: Goodfellas was the big critical darling that year. I I definitely feel like as with many Scorsese movies. Um, It it's a very much an East Coast thing. Do you know what I mean? Where like Mm -hmm. the critics and sort of the 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 establishment of people who write about movies are very much in the tank for something like Goodfellas, which is a great movie and which was the best movie of 1990, if you ask me. But um, I I think you stack that up with Dances with Wolves, and you and you think of the Academy demographic even Mm -hmm. now, but like certainly back then. Um, Dances with the Wolves is gonna win that one every time. The other three nominees are very interesting for Best Picture, because you mentioned Godfather Part 3, which feels like very much a legacy nomination, that that one right. sort of set in stone, and even though it was a disappointment, and even though uh, you know a lot of people think it is, as you said, a really bad movie, it held on. It managed to like hold on. It
0: also opened at Christmas, too, so you can imagine people not having seen it until the last minute, but they've already like reserved a spot on their ballot for it, which you still even see today.
1: Oh, absolutely. And then the other two... Are Ghost, which was a huge hit and was Mm -hmm. like basically like the populist sort of movie of that year. And I love when movies like that can go in because, like, Ghost, while not a perfect movie, is like that movie has stood the test of time for a reason. Like, every it's a
0: goddamn screenplay winner, which is wild. It is always crazy to me. Have you watched Ghost recently? Oh,
1: I mean, maybe not within the last few months, but like, I watch Ghost all the time. Whenever it's on television, I'll settle in and I'll watch Ghost because at some point, Ghost. When
0: Whoopi Goldberg is not on screen, is so bad. Uh, yes, but I, I think I thought it. I thought it was so bad, and Whoopi like full force saves that movie. Like Whoopi absolutely deserves her Oscar for that movie for like how watchable she makes it and how like I will. She does something to elevate like what the actual like love story drama is, and like allows us to get invested in it and like be out, like, not outraged, but like, be so thrown by what this crazy concept is. I'm gonna disagree a little bit with that, just
1: because I feel like Ghost has such a does such a good job of defining the parameters of its weird concept that you get really invested, I think you really get invested in things like Patrick Swayze trying to pick up the penny, and like learning how to like assert his physical force in the universe with, um, what's his name? Vincent Schiavelli, the train... Goblin or whatever, and Mm -hmm. you know all the stuff with like Tony Goldwyn being dastardly or whatever. I think all of that stuff for me works. I think when you, I think you're maybe talking mostly about the romance of it, which is very over the the top. Yeah, love story
0: does not work for me. But I,
1: but it's so over the top and so sort of like melodramatic that I get why it works for a lot of people, and I get why it was such a thing the the pottery scene and Unchained Melody and all that sort of stuff. That
0: I get. That's that's like sexy, but.
1: Um, I also
0: love that, like, I used to walk down
1: that little stretch of street where, um, Patrick Swayze gets killed in that movie all the time on my way to work when I used to work at the Atlantic, when I first started the Atlantic. Um, oh, wow. it was very interesting and very strange at the same time.
0: I uh, love it. And then you have Awakenings. Awakenings. Which is... Which weirdly did not type get... The type of movie we still reward. Weirdly,
1: Awakenings did not get the treatment The sort of, like, indignant, why not, why didn't you nominate its director treatment that Prince of Tides got the next year. Even though, like, justice Mm -hmm. for Penny Marshall.
0: Yeah. Shout out to our Writing in Cars with Boys episodes. We love Penny Marshall.
1: Yes. Uh, What else about the 1990 Oscars? And Now I'm sort of, like, lingering on this um, Wikipedia page because I do think it's an interesting set of... I mean, like, The Grifters is well, such a good movie. That was the year that Julia Roberts was nominated for Pretty Woman and gets beat by Kathy Bates, a result that I am happy with because I like a universe where Kathy Bates has an Oscar for Misery and then Julia still ends up winning for Aaron Brockovich, you know, exactly. ten years
0: later. Um, um, what was the one that I'm always surprised wasn't nominated? There's something... From 1990? Um, the 1990 Oscars, why they're so fascinating, cool, never again will you have a category where you have fellow nominees Steven Sondheim, Shel Silverstein, <laughs> and John Bon Jovi. <laughs> yeah, that's a great original song lineup. Oh, that's what always pisses me off that wasn't nominated. Shirley MacLaine's not nominated for Postcards from the Edge. So
1: who do we bump off in Supporting Actress? Supporting Actress that year, I mentioned Diane Ladd. Nominated for Wild at Heart, Whoopi won for Ghost, Annette Benning for The Grifters, Lorraine Bracco, who was the big critical champ that year, for Goodfellas, and Mary McDonnell for Dances with Wolves.
0: I am not one to ever shove Mary McDonnell aside. She deserves better than she's gotten. Otherwise, but I would easily knock that one. I off. agree. I think I agree. That's, that's a, it's it's a, it's a weird it's a
1: you know it's a role that these days would probably be written out of
0: that movie. Or written a lot differently about the movie. I don't know. It, you can do I I don't whole... know if it'd be written out because, like, those kind of movies still have to have this like obsession with having love interests somewhere.
1: But it's weird that she's this white woman who was sort of raised by this. Uh, yeah, Nakoda like the tribe. optics
0: of it are yeah. precarious. Um, but yeah,
1: definitely, I think that's the fifth best performance. I love that Mary McDonald was nominated two years later for Passion Fish, um, perhaps. Her best film performance,
0: and I realize that adapted screenplay is also stacked. But postcards from the edge should also be a- nominated for adapted. Postcards
1: screenplay. from the edge is a great movie. Yeah, Carrie Fisher deserved that nomination for right. She ad- she did the adaptation herself. Yes.
0: Ah,
1: because I remember there are all these stories about like on hey, on set of like Meryl and Carrie sort of like being pals on set. I see. Yes, she is credited. Yes. Um, what a great movie, a- Postcards from the Edges. Every once in a while, Love that movie. I'll like, just sort of pop in and watch some scenes from it. Shirley MacLaine and Meryl Streep are perfect, m- playing Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher, and it's wonderful.
0: Whenever we talk about Mike Nichols, that movie always kind of gets either forgotten or pushed aside in the conversation, and like, it's, it's one of his best movies. Mike Nichols
1: is such a great, I've mentioned this before, such a great director of actresses. We are s- recording this. Um, our wonderful friends at Blank Check, the Blank Check podcast, um, are doing their bracket tournament for who they're going to do an upcoming series on. They're doing Oscar winning directors and Razzie winning directors. It's such a great idea. And Mike Nichols is the one I've decided to obnoxiously ride for on Twitter. And I will try and be, Same. try and keep my decorum, but like, Mike Nichols's filmography to like dig through, and I know it would be like basically sentencing blank check to like half a year doing the same director, and it's a lot, but they put him on their <laughs> bracket, so what am I to do? <laughs> um, it's just it's a it's such an insanely good filmography. Like I mean, I I where do you even begin? there's weird stuff, there's great stuff, there's silkwood, there's um there's weird stuff like wolf there's the bird yes. cage there's you know heartburn and the day of the fucking dolphin and you know f- obviously his first two movies are who's afraid of virginia wolf and the graduate which just like try and fuck with that just like deeply try and fuck with that like it's so amazing mm-hmm. that he comes out of the gate like that and yet does stuff like biloxi blues working girl um primary colors and then a disaster like what planet are you from that still I think would be really interesting to watch and his last theatrical movie is the one that like I'm always talking about I wishing we could do on this podcast which is Charlie Wilson's War like what a fascinating filmography
0: Ugh, I don't know Mike Nichols is awesome also what I hope it comes down to is his partner Elaine May or his like creative partner Elaine May I would love to see them be the final two that would be an amazing final two head. matchup Battle of the Friends since you brought up Working Girl, which I also love, yes, I want to kind of pivot back to Melanie Griffith, Let's because do. I think she's a performer that we've brought up before, but we've never actually had an episode discussing a film that she it's a good point. is in, unless I'm
1: forgetting No, I don't think wrong. we have.
0: I love Melanie Griffith so much. She was like... Okay. Weirdly, she was kind of a staple of my childhood because Milk Money and now and then were like childhood movies. Sure. Don't ask me why we were watching Milk Money.
1: Um, do you remember the that's remake? Actually, a very sweet. Do you
0: remember movie. the remake of Born Yesterday she was in? I remember that
1: one like weirdly prominently.
0: Yes, but I don't. I remember it like the VHS case of it. I'm looking but at the I'd poster right now, which it. is
1: literally um, a woman's legs put up on a desk in like pumps. And sure. um, you can't see her face. She's sort of like sitting in this like captain's chair, and you know, holding a pair of glasses. But uh, uh, it's it's an odd poster because I'm not sure what it's exactly selling us. And isn't the idea of Born Yesterday that she's this sort of like she's like a dancing girl, right? Mm, and then they and then she like... like gets transferred to like high society or something.
0: Yes, something, something like,
1: like that. that. You know, classic Pygmalion tale. But Don Johnson's yeah. in that, right? She's classic in like American 8 theater. billion movies with
0: Don Johnson. Yes. Former husband. Yeah. Yeah, she was a Both big... Both parents a, to Dakota Johnson, yes. noted fan of limes. <laughs> yes, she loves those um, limes. I I love limes. I love decorating with them. whatever it is. I will be monologuing <laughs> that at some point in the future, um, tattooing the entire text of it on my face. Um, but Melanie Griffith is one of those people who I think was treated very poorly, and I know that she had some addiction issues. Yeah, but um, she had a she's very such a good performer. She had
1: a very interesting run of movies after Working Girl, right? Where like. She mm-hmm. makes Pacific Heights, which is, like, a pretty well-received thriller. It's a John Schlesinger movie. It's her and Matthew Modine. Kind of rules. Yeah. Her and Matthew Modine are this couple. They're, like, renovating a house. And um, Michael Keaton plays... Is he the tenant that, like, won't leave or something like that? Or, like...
0: He's terrorizing them, basically. Yes. Because he wants the house. Yes,
1: yes. And, uh... And then Bonfire of the is in nineteen ninety, which is such a disaster. She makes uh, this movie Paradise in nineteen ninety one, which is her and Don Johnson, and uh, one of their a kid, right? Yes, and maybe the kid dies. I can't remember, but like it's all it's it's sort of a marriage melodrama. I always oh, right. sort of put it in the same bucket as When a Man Loves a Woman, even though it's about different things, right, right, right. right. But it's like oh, two movie stars we want to see you know end up together because they're movie stars like that kind of a thing um sorry one second
0: next was shining through yes. the um world war Two spy movie that was also really reviled i watched that as a kid and i don't really have much recollection of it enough to know what would have been bad about it
1: That's Michael Douglas, right? I think there
0: might be, yes, it's her and Michael Douglas. I think there might be some weird dialect stuff about it. Interesting. I think she's, like, pretending to be a Nazi, to, like, Mm. get Nazi secrets. I always confuse the title of that
1: movie with her next movie, which is A Stranger Among Us, where she um, goes undercover in an Orthodox Jewish community. She's like a cop. Is that the poster where she's just, it's her and a shotgun? Hmm. Not the one that's on IMDb, but there could have been another poster, for sure. The one on IMDb is just, like, very much, like, her face large and sort of washed out. And, no, there is. there's the the, Yeah, the one, the much more common one. I'm looking at it now. It's not a shotgun. She's got a handgun. She's got this, like, giant sort Ah. of, like, I don't know. Is it a Beretta? I don't know what a Beretta is. I don't know guns. Sorry, guys, I don't know guns. But she's got this, like, really, like... This is not
0: a gun podcast. No.
1: She's got this cool-looking, like, leather sort of, like tan leather coat um but yeah it's she's a cop and she goes undercover in this orthodox jewish community and i don't know solves a crime or something like that those were both her 1992 movies that one and shining through born yesterday is 93 and then your beloved milk money in 94 which i absolutely remember being like very much i don't know a thing because the whole thing is like these little kids like convince her these boys
0: want to see a woman's boobs right so they pool all of their money to go to the city to find a prostitute to show them their boobs. And then she goes on the run because she witnesses a murder and goes to their suburban community and falls in love with one of the bo- the nice boys' dad, who's played by Ed Harris. It is not as cringy as it sounds. Like, this could be yeah. the most problematic movie, and there are still things about it that are problematic, but, like, it doesn't judge her for being a sex worker it is like very much the PG thirteen version of what sex work is. And like there's a lot of cliches, but it's a very sweet movie. Directed by <laughs> She's
1: really sweet directed it. directed by Richard Benjamin, who directed Mermaids. So Fantastic. As well as Marcy X. So really quite a career there. Okay, Richard Benjamin, who is like an actor and whatever, and like, you know, is known for a bunch of things, was in Westworld. Um was he also the one armed man in The Fugitive? Hold on a second. Uh, uh, I could be totally up a creek and we might have to erase this if I'm wrong. I think I'm wrong. Anyway, somebody else. Richard Benjamin, though, actor director, and as a director, directed Mermaids, Milk Money, Mrs. Winterborn. Do you remember Mrs. Winterbourne? Yes, I do. He directed Ricky Lake. Yes, Ricky Lake and Shirley MacLaine. Yes. Um, and I. Brendan Fraser? Who's the lover? Brendan Fraser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Good memory. Um, Directed The Money Pit. He directed, as I said, Marcy X, the infamous Lisa Kudrow 2003 movie where she plays a rapper?
0: Uh, yes?
1: I've never seen Marcy X. Should I see Marcy X? I don't know.
0: Probably not. I know Sherry Renee Scott's in it. And that was the thing that was getting me to see it. He also
1: directed Made but in America, the Whoopi Goldberg Ted Danson movie that is like such a moment in time. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, where she's like Whoopi Goldberg uses a um Wait, what a second. I don't know. Anyway, it's a whole like she's black and he's white and can they get along? And he's sort of like, you know, he's got a cowboy hat on in the in the poster. Oh, it's a sperm bank uh, mix-up. Oh, that's what it is. Is she went to the sperm bank to like get you know she wanted to have a kid because this is of course in the like Mm -hmm. Murphy Brown single women having children is like the last frontier kind of a era and but she didn't realize that her sperm donor would be white.
0: Ah, yeah. Okay, I never saw that movie, but I just remember even then being like, oh boy.
1: All right, we are tangenting like crazy in this episode. We've had we've had diversions into both Mike Nichols and Richard Benjamin. It's quite the time, Um, yeah. So like after Milk Money, she's in Nobody's Fool, but she's at like a supporting role in Nobody's Fool. That's very much uh, Paul Newman's movie, and it really like drops off from then. Like now and then is again. It's she's sort of one of this ensemble of four. Was now and then a big and of the adult
0: actresses, it really like pays the least attention yes, to her. Yes,
1: absolutely, because it's her and Rosie O'Donnell and Demi Moore and Rita Wilson. Speaking of Bonfire of the Vanities, who knew that now and then was a Bonfire of the Vanities reunion for Melanie Griffith yeah. and Rita Wilson? And then, of course, the children are um, them—the gir- the girls' younger girls: Christina Ricci, Thora Birch, Gabby Hoffman, and Ashley Aston Moore who I always thought was
0: Demi Moore's daughter.
1: Yeah. And was not. But it's not. No. But they
0: just have, yeah. and A she, very common last name.
1: Yeah. And she has since passed away. She died in 2007. So. Yeah, rest in peace. Um, But anyway... Was now and then a big movie when you were younger? I remember it being sort of a pretty big oh movie. Oh my
0: god, are you kidding me? In our household, me and my sisters, absolutely. Yeah. I love that there's this whole generation of people that like that was a childhood movie for them. I, who was it? I, I think it was for Vulture. There's the piece about Devin they interviewed Devin Sawa and I was like, This is creepy. But it was like the but it was very funny to me, like a generation of girls who lusted over Devin Sawa in uh, now and then and who thought that you could see him naked. Oh, yeah, because there's that one... Yes, because
1: they're all, like, whatever, like, jumping into a lake or something like that. Is that a thing? Yes. Yeah. Devon Sawa's very brief sort of moment in time, because you're right, you have to be a very specific age to be sort of of the Devon Sawa moment, and I was. I was 15 when Now and Then happened. Um, Because he's in... Same year, he's in Casper and Now and Then. And, like, the difference between, like sort of tween appealing and again i'm 15 in 1995 but like a very young 15 like i basically behaved like a (laughs) tween so like it makes sense to me that i was sort of a little bit gaga for devon sawa in casper because he's just sort of like he's a friendly ghost come to life like he's not in any way like alluring it's just sort of just like oh you're a very cute like young, nice boy,
0: with the nineties middle part butt hair of course, of course, he yeah, was supposed yeah, to yeah, 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 like yeah. he was a he was a training wheels um crush who had that hair first, and I'm not trying to start anything <laughs> but maybe I'm trying to start something, and maybe I also really want the answer, who had that hair first, Sawa or DiCaprio, oh. Well, I feel like the answer might be Devin Sawa. But, like, by a matter of months,
1: because 1995 is Basketball Diaries. Did Leo have that hair in Basketball Diaries?
0: Yeah, it's at least on the poster he did.
1: But more people saw both Casper and Now and Then than saw Basketball Diaries. So he still might be able to give it to Devin. Yeah. This all culminates, by the way, in Wild America, where Devin Sawa and um jonathan taylor thomas and scott Bearstow who like went to jail for like sexual assault or something like that i don't know it was a whole thing anyway it was like three hot brothers <laughs> travel across america and like photograph animals i don't know something like that but i was just like <laughs> but devin saw was like the middle child and he's like Obviously, it's a very, like, it's a whole Nick Carter thing, right? Like, that's the whole appeal of that. It's that sort of, you know, blonde, very pretty. Like, Leo, that was Leo's appeal up through Titanic and whatnot, is just, like, look at this very, very pretty boy. And for a certain age, like, it really imprints on you, I will say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Anyway. That was even then not my thing, but I, I am fascinated <laughs> by the generation of people that it like was their thing. Like, truly, like the it, like the height of Tiger Beat era is like JTT and Devin Sawa. Oh, yeah. Um, where the hell is Jonathan Taylor Thomas, by the way?
1: I don't know, but I hope he made a lot of money and is sort of like living off of it.
0: I agree and just like went away yeah. is getting home improvement residuals and like I don't know yeah donating that to good causes it's, anyway it's interesting
1: that Melanie Griffith's career sort of downturned in conjunction with the time where she married Antonio Banderas right I know they make crazy in Alabama together nobody really saw that movie um She's actually a really interesting part of Cecil B. Demented, the John Waters movie Cecil B. Demented, which I still need to see. Um, it's not the best thing, but it's like it's very much worth your while. It's very, it's a very interesting little movie. But like she just sort of like slowly kind of goes away. She's in um, the HBO TV movie RKO Two Eight One as Marion Davies. That was sort of the the making of Citizen Kane movie, and but mostly by the by the you know by the time two thousand hits, she's gone she's not in anything and you know even she'll show up for like a you know a cameo guest star appearance on like nip tuck um she was in the pilot of that show viva laughlin remember viva (laughs) laughlin
0: yes With I you, remember Jackman? one of uh, we always talk about our like because we only can see each other at TIFF like our favorite like TIFF moments one of mine that I don't think we've ever brought up on this podcast mm-hmm. is like the full body seizing gasp we experienced simultaneously when she came on screen in The Disaster Artist oh my wait no that's not uh, uh, you're thinking of Sharon Stone she is no Sharon Stone is in the movie but she she's at the very beginning in the you're acting right.
1: class she's the you're teacher. right she's the Class teacher. I, because my big gasp in that movie, you're right that we both gasped at Melanie Griffith. you
0: I was totally because we knew that. about Sharon Stone, but I don't think we knew about Melanie Griffith. Melanie Griffith is someone who I just really am rooting for her to have some type of comeback, even to like, I, I'm one of those people that does side eye, like all of the Ryan Murphy type of things, but like she's a perfect person for like to have a Ryan Murphy type of comeback, you know? Yes. Um, I don't know. She... And, like, some of the way that she was, like, treated in Hollywood and, like, in the press was because of plastic surgery type of things. And I just think that that's all gross. And she definitely deserves better. Um, I mean, just, like, fucking watch Working Girl and tell me that she's not doing something absolutely amazing that, like, elevates it to even more than what it is. And, like, maybe some of that's Mike Nichols, too, but... She's always had a very
1: particular delivery that is mm-hmm. I to to call it slurry would you know sort of cast aspersions in a way I don't want to but there's some kind of a sort of like you know I don't know there's a little bit of like a a slow delay to the way she talks and it's just very peculiar which is why she's such a uniquely bad fit for accents because it just mm-hmm. sounds like she's like trying it for the first time which is absolutely what it sounds like in Bonfire of the Vanity it's like it just sounds like somebody's like at a party and just like hey for fun see if you can do a southern accent she's
0: doing the thing it's it's interesting because like i wonder I couldn't find any quotes from her on the movie, but I'd be really interested to see what her perspective was or how she approached this character because it does feel in a way like she's trying to subvert her own image, like she's mm-hmm. trying to do the type of like voice character thing that people accused her of or like paid attention to her for. Because you're right, she does have this very unique vocal delivery. Um, and and she's also... it's. It's my favorite... I brought up Dakota Johnson. It's, like, my favorite mother-daughter acting pair that's not, you know, Judy and Liza. Well, and Dakota
1: Um, Johnson's a very interesting one because, like, she... She doesn't remind me of her mother at all in her personality or the way she, like, speaks or acts or delivers lines. Like, she doesn't have any of her... Like, she doesn't talk like her mother. She doesn't sort of... Mostly doesn't look like her. And... Not like, whatever, like, you know, she doesn't look like her at all. But, like, she's definitely strikes a different image than Melanie Griffith did. And I think is able to play different types of roles. Like, I couldn't see a young Melanie Griffith in something like, um, oh, what's the one with Ray Fiennes and Tilda that I can't remember?
0: Oh, A Bigger Splash. See, that's the one that really ties the two of them together. Oh, that's interesting. Because you're right, like, you don't, When you look at her, you don't see her, but they both, I think the things that are really impressive and, like, exciting to watch about them as performers are very similar in that, like, they can elevate certain material. Like, I actually think Dakota Johnson is great in the Fifty Shades movies, and she knows exactly what they are, and she is, like, poking some fun at them. I think she's doing a great job, um but they they also have this knack for having this interior life that feels like a distinct take on a character that may or may not be on the page, but it's just like watching them exist as this person on screen is so compelling to watch
1: yeah yeah, I see that i'm I'm definitely all in on Dakota Johnson as an actress. I think yeah, she's absolutely incredibly interesting um yeah. All right, what else about why Bonfire the Vanity has had Oscar buzz? Um, should we talk about Hanks? I mean, How do Tom we feel Hanks, about Hanks yeah. in this
0: movie? We haven't really done a Tom Hanks movie, and it feels like a weird movie to like have the full Tom Hanks discussion. Yeah. Because it feels like so. It feels like he probably emerged the most unscathed. Which is weird. From this movie. Because maybe not in the moment, but it's like. In just a few years, right. it's, like, this type of disaster and, like, a lot of other movies, like, that people would, you know, snub their nose at, like Turner and Hooch, kind of feel like they get scrubbed from his reputation because of Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. Yes, I think that's right. And and like I think, the things that came
1: after. And sometimes unfairly scrubbed. I think it took a while for people to come back around to the idea that he's great in A League of Their Own.
0: Mm-hmm. because Philadelphia... you said that that's your favorite performance of it his. It is my
1: favorite performance of his, because it showcases. I think if you go, and I mean, I have no issue with his performance in Philadelphia. It's amazing. He deserved the Oscar. I love him in dramas. I've talked about how much I love him in something like Captain Phillips. But I think something like A League of Their Own, I you, I don't want to lose comedy Hanks when I when I get my like ultimate Hanks performance. And he's so no, and good you're at right. comedy. Like, he's it, so great at It shouldn't
0: just be the back-to-back Oscar win that's, like, given the credit for this. You're right to say that A League of Their Own should be a part of that as well. It's a perfect because, like, performance. like, that was a huge hit. Yep.
1: It's a perfect performance. He and Gina Davis play off each other so incredibly well. That scene that's such a famous scene where the two of them are giving conflicting signals to Marla, and Marla's sort of, like, stepping in and out of the batter's box, and it's very funny. But it's just, like, what a great scene of, like, completely wordless physical comedy between two actors who aren't even looking at each other but are in perfect sync with each other in terms of just like their their motions and their their um, frustrations with each other as that scene uh, happens it's so perfectly done he's so great in that movie and i'm glad that we are we finally reached a point where we haven't decided to forget everything that came before um philadelphia With like Big, it's like Big got to be the exception because that was another um, Oscar nomination for him. But like, we can appreciate A League of Their Own. I can appreciate something like The Burbs. I know I'm the only person sort of like carrying the flag for Joe Dante's The Burbs, but he's so funny in that. And that's very much like 80s comedy Hanks, the sort of thing where he like eventually, you know, sort of like starts yelling at people and sort of reaches a boiling point. He was weirdly like an Adam Sandler type for the 80s. Mm-hmm. Who like yeah? Th- who like made that next step and decided he was going to, you know, work hard and at being a dramatic actor and like totally graduated to the next step. And Sandler just decided not to do that. But their personas, their comedic personas, especially when Hanks is younger, are like strangely similar. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean it makes you it, if the comparison would be like a sandler it would have to be like punch drunk love happening in like 1999 right you know and, in and, terms of what the trajectory
1: and is. if punch drunk love changed sandler's career trajectory entirely if he didn't go back to making adam sandler yeah. movies after punch drunk love totally yeah what do you think of hanks in this movie though Because he was the big, he was the one where everybody was like, this movie is miscast. They were talking about him first, like other people also. But they were mostly like Tom Hanks is miscast in this movie.
0: Again, it's like, it's hard to say the miscast thing, having not read the book and seeing if it's so distinctly different. I don't think for what the character qualities are that those are things that Tom Hanks can't do. I do think maybe it's like... If he was older, it would make a little bit more sense, like the yeah. Tom Hanks we know now. But I don't I don't think he's one of the worst. Again, I, I think Melanie Griffith is the one that comes off the best and has probably the best performance in the movie. It's... There was something about Tom Hanks that hadn't quite gelled. You know, like when a performer does come into their own, it feels like, yes, Big was... Like the early arrival of that, but it doesn't feel like yeah. until A League of Their Own it kind of came together. And it definitely feels like that kind of performance from a performer where it's like maybe it's uneasy, like he's not taking a direct tack. It's very much like the movie is doing where it's kind of trying to balance things that don't really work. Yeah. But it's not a face plant for him. Like, I don't think he's doing anything actively bad. I think there are times when I do think he's,
1: or if not bad, like, for Tom Hanks, he's bad. Like, given his usual level of proficiency and, sure. you know, I think, I was like, wow, this is a remarkably not great Tom Hanks performance. Some of the other actors that were considered for this role um, were Steve Martin and... Chevy Chase and it's interesting to think of what kind of a movie would have resulted because obviously mm-hmm. then you tailor it much more towards those sort of comedic persona
0: but and I wonder he if... still has his boyishness at this mm, point yes. that I think is working against the movie and working against him like being believable as this character maybe? Maybe. It's interesting also
1: the tidbit that Hank's um, Got Uma Thurman replaced by Melanie Griffith in this movie. That he didn't mm-hmm. didn't want to act opposite Uma Thurman, who was you know relatively sort of green around this time. Uh, she's another one though. Nineteen eighty eight breakthrough, Dangerous Liaisons. So mm-hmm. um, it's very interesting. You look at who was considered because Lena Olin was also considered for that role, and she was another one, Oscar nominee, nineteen eighty eight for. Um, Enemies of Love Story. Why do I keep bringing up Enemies of Love Story on this podcast? <laughs> what a weird thing. What a weird uh, uh, tendency of mine. Um, Walter Matthau was originally well offered the role of the judge. Like, the what-ifs of this movie in terms of casting are wild. Jack Nicholson was originally supposed to be the Bruce Willis um, uh, role. Bruce Willis is so obnoxious in this movie. I swear to God. It
0: just gives you the to the thing of the casting like... Uh, Background is that it does give you the real sense of like how big of a deal this movie was at the time. That they're talking to like Jack Nicholson for like basically the third or fourth lead of the movie, even though he's the narrator. It's so weird. It's so. It's a very strange movie. It's a fascinatingly strange movie. Like, this is something I would actually recommend for listeners to watch. Like, not saying that you will necessarily like it, but to watch something that is truly a fascinating failure yeah i don't know this is one of the more exciting things we've watched to me in a while just in terms of the machinations of how a movie is or is
1: i'm glad i finally watched it i'm glad i finally got the sort of like full sense of what it is i totally get why it was piled on the way it was with you know expectations versus what ended up becoming of it it's and for all the
0: things that are offensive about all the it. things
1: that are offensive about it all of the what ifs in the casting i mean we we've barely like scratched the surface in terms of casting like you mentioned michelle Pfeiffer, who turned down the role of um of maria also Mar- that she's named maria is weird like I-, I don't know it's it's there's this weird like confluence of sort of like racial politics that are happening all through this movie and i guess in on the page, maybe that comes across as more satisfyingly chaotic. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Also, John Cleese was supposed to be the Bruce Willis role, which is interesting because in the book. He's supposed to be British. He's supposed to be British, which, like, I think that that sort of, like, sort of English, constantly soused kind of a, you know, character maybe comes off better or more. Um, I'm thinking, did you? Are, you're not a West Wing person, right? We can't, we don't share that in common, right? No, unfortunately. Roger Rees played a character on the West Wing uh, named Lord John Marbury. He was the uh, British ambassador to the uh, United States uh, eventually, and he was, I think, sort of the kind of character that they maybe envisioned um, as Cleese kind of playing, where he was just sort of like constantly a little bit pickled, a little bit sort of like you know into his cups and. Um, but in the in the West Wing, he's also, like, very, like, surprisingly sharp. But he's sort of, like, you know, you know he's in the West Wing because he's, like, making a fuss and whatever and, you know, a womanizer and, uh, and you know, inappropriate and whatnot. And Gerald! Oh, God. Gerald,
0: old friend! Good to see you, Ambassador. Ah, it's as if the gods themselves insist that we be not long apart, you and I. They do seem to strongly
1: insist upon that, yes. Your assistant Margaret is looking uh, positively buxom. Thank you. I'll tell her.
0: Thank you. Oh yes, well done.
1: I think that probably comes across a little bit better than what Willis is doing in Bonfire of the Vanities, which just feels smug and obnoxious and like it's in its own movie entirely.
0: I just really think you don't need the Peter Fallow character. You certainly don't need it. I think this movie probably works a decent amount better if you don't have that character narrating it because it's like this. It makes it this weird, like perspective that like throws off the satire yes. he doesn't really do anything until the third act of the movie right and
1: again it feels and it's like
0: it's only kept because the book is probably written in that character's voice absolutely right? absolutely like, that's my assumption and yeah I don't know.
1: and it, it also and again it's such an era of like that we would care who's telling the story what journalist what sort of like rock star journalist is telling the story the reception he gets at the end of the movie when he like when they finally like get back to the frame story where he like shows up at this speaking engagement with this giant sort of like poster of the book cover and he's such Mm -hmm. a sensation or whatever and it's just like what a weird tom wolf conception of the way the world works like
0: that's On top of it being strange that, like, it's supposed to be skewering the Sherman McCoys of the world, but it doesn't take, like, Peter Fallow to any type of task for also, like, exhibiting the same things.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That character just needs to go. There's a trivia item on the IMDb trivia that says, Reverend Reginald Bacon was modeled after Al Sharpton. Oh, was he? Yeah, dude. Interesting. Thank you for this little tidbit. Jesus.
0: <laughs> N- uh, modeled after uh, rather yeah. than like a mocking caricature yeah. of Jesus. <laughs> We should also mention that like even though I don't like talking about them, they just like hate women. This is was a huge Razzie nominee. How many Razzie nominations did it get? Like six or something? And it didn't, but it didn't win. win.
1: And it like two movies tied for the Razzie that year and none Five of them nominees. none of them was Bonfire the Vanities, which to me and again, I don't like to take the Razzie seriously and I don't like to debate, you know, should haves in their awards, but like you are telling me there are two more prominent face plants this year than uh, than The Bond for the Vandies, and apparently there were one of them Oh yes. I've never heard of, which is a movie uh, starring Bo Derek called Ghosts Can't Do It that was directed... I would
0: like to read you the plot of this movie.
1: Please do. Directed by her, I want to say, husband or father. I can't remember. No, husband. Sorry. I didn't know. Um, John John Derek. Derek yes.
0: Starring Bo Derek. The Razzie's loved to hate on Bo Derek as much as possible. Yes. The plot of Ghosts Can't Do It is elderly Scott kills himself after a heart attack wrecks his body, but then comes back as a ghost and convinces his loving young hot wife, Kate, to pick and kill a young man in order for Scott to possess his body and be with her again. Wow. The title Ghosts Can't Do It is a reference to a ghost can't fuck you. Wow. This happening in the year of Ghost being a Best Picture nominee. That had to have been intentional. I mean, I can't imagine you'd be able to, to be that serendipitous. Ghosts Can't Do It, also winner of the Razzie for Supporting Actor, for who? I will let you guess.
1: Oh. I mean, I have no idea. The guy, the person who... Donald Trump. Shut the fuck up.
0: Yes, Donald Trump apparently has a cameo in Ghost Can't Do It. Gross. And he won a Razzie. The
1: other film that tied for Worst Picture of the Year at the Razzie's that year was The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, which starred Andrew Dice Clay and um, was directed by Rennie Harlan, famous director of terrible movies. Uh, But Andrew Dice Clay sort of like, you know, obviously had his little moments... In time, and this was him trying to become a movie star, and the Razzies were like, "Yeah, no," and the the reviews were terrible. But the thing I remember about The Adventures of Ford Fairland because I never saw it, but that was the movie that Billy Idol's "Cradle of Love" was on the soundtrack to, and that was a music video Um. that like really flipped me out when I was younger, and which is just like sort of sexuality all over the place, where it's like because obviously the whole thing is about this like teenage girl who seduces this guy who like lives down the hall in their apartment building and it's gross but it's also like she's the girl is very much in control of the whole situation so it's like it's a really interesting um thing that I that again things that imprinted on me when I was at this point 10 years old um but it's a it's an amazing music video to watch right now it's both good and very dated but worth uh checking out, I would say, um, but on that same tip of things that weirded me out on a like um ten year old observing sexuality from a distance was the trailer for The Bonfire of the Vanities features that part in the movie There's a lot of sex in the trailer. She like the part where she like takes her dress off, Melody Griffith takes her dress off and she's just got like the brawn panties on was like I'm pretty sure she disrobes twice in the trailer. It really freaked me out when I was younger and watching that trailer cuz I was just like I didn't know you could be like, you could, you know, show women that undressed just on television. Like it was just on regular television.
0: They also have like flame art in this trailer. It's the most (laughs) this trailer is doing a lot. Um, I love these old school, crunchy trailers. That it's just so the style of it is fascinating to me. I love
1: them. The other Razzie nominees for worst picture this year, by the way, Bond for the Vanities doesn't win. Rocky Five, which was like every like sure, universally saw. considered the worst rocky at that point and then graffiti bridge which was i believe the sequel to purple rain like an uh, unofficial pseudo sequel thank you yeah
0: yeah yeah.
1: um so like kind of an like kind of an amazing year for the Razzies worst picture like again we don't like to give the Razzies any kind of credit boy that but fascinating yeah anyway
0: Anyway, any last notes on Bonfire of the Vanities? This is so, like, I feel like we could do a whole mini-series on this movie, and it feels like we have to, like, skin the surface for just an episode. It's wild. You know who I thought was kind of good in this? is Saul Rubinick. I love Saul. Saul Rubinick is never bad. Who was in The Untouchables, right? That was sort of... That's Uh, his diploma connection? I mean, that makes sense.
1: I could be wrong, but I think that's true. Um... Saul Rubinick has never been bad. He sells National the sort of... treasure,
0: Saul Rubinick. Because
1: he sort of starts and he's like the, you know, the, he's the assistant DA who doesn't really know the ropes politically. And then by the end of the movie, he's this sort of like crazed charlatan running this kangaroo court or whatever. And... That's again, you talk about movies that are performances that in a better movie would have sold the satire that they're trying to go for. Mm-hmm. I think he's Absolutely. one of them. I think he he at least seemed to have a handle on what was going on. Whereas and again, I don't blame Morgan Freeman for this, but I think because I think he's written into an impossible role. And he's basically asked to just sort of like be Morgan Freeman. And this is sort of the first movie that employs Morgan Freeman as the like voice of God concept. Mm-hmm. Um, which he would become sort of like famous for, like the, you know, eternal narrator kind of a thing. And all they really ask him to do is come in and like be very blunt about the film's messages. But I don't think that the Freeman performance it, uh in this movie is half as attuned to what this movie's trying to do as someone like Rubinick.
0: Yeah. So I don't Boy. know. It's bad. So much, so much. We haven't going even on talked
1: about movie. the famous uh, artist, uh, whatever poet in that one fancy party who has like AIDS. Oh my and god! And Hanks's character like recoils from him in a, mo- in a moment. he's we're supposed to like laugh at.
0: Uh, yeah, it's awful. There's uh, he's introduced as, and he has AIDS multiple times as in a the punchline. movie, and it's like, well, like I could kind of get like. Showing how this high society type of people would objectify people yes. with AIDS and be like, "Look at this exotic AIDS that they have." It's what, and like, it's what try, be trying to do that, but like the movie is so hamfisted with it that it ends up being the opposite direction and being more of the thing it's trying to satirize, and it's offensive.
1: That conception of that poet at the party being celebrated for having AIDS is exactly what Richard in the hours did not want to go to the party for, for the Carruthers. Yes. Because he didn't want to just be celebrated for that. So truly even bad movies like the bonfire, of the vanities can tie back into the hours. There's a play here in New York city that, uh, well, everything's closed now on Broadway, but there was, um, Called the minutes that I don't know anything about, except for that. Oh, the Tracy Let's Play. Except for right. Except for every time somebody mentions it, I say, "Oh, the prequel to the hours," and I think it's very funny.
0: <laughs> I think I'm being real cut up. I hadn't even thought of that, you demonic person. You. That's a really good joke. <laughs> oh, that's stupid. Okay, um... that's funny. Yeah, I think that's Should we about move it. Move on to the IMDb game. Let's.
1: We've we've been doing this for far too long. <laughs>
0: Explain to the listeners, new and old, what the
1: IMDb game is. Sure. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other, with an actor or actress, to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints, because we love both hints and free-for-alls. Freeze for all? Free-for-alls
0: free for all. free for all free <laughs> for Thank you, Cher. Joe, would you like to give or guess first? I'll give. Why not? Okay. What do you got for me? So,
1: 1990, big year. Uh of the Vanities was not really allowed to participate in the Oscars at all, which is too bad. A uh, big winner that year at the Oscars was obviously Dances with Wolves, starring and directed by one Kevin Costner. So, Chris.
0: Oh. Why don't
1: you give me Kevin Costner's?
0: Um, Dances with Wolves. Correct. Uh, The Bodyguard? Correct. Okay. Um, hmm. Field of Dreams? Incorrect. One Strike. Gotcha. Uh, Field of Dreams just, like, always shocks me as just a thing that exists still
1: Chris, in the consciousness. it's a perfect movie.
0: Okay. Um, I, I, I get it. I get it. And, like, uh, I, I just, I'm always like, wow, that movie exists. Um... Uh, another movie that I'm like, wow, that exists and it's great. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Correct. I love hell, love
1: yeah. Robin Hood. That that was his follow up to Dances with Wolves. Is delicious that he just decided it's like a fucking flex. I'm not going to do an accent in this movie where everybody else, including Christian Slater, is attempting. Oh, an he accent. thinks
0: he's doing an accent.
1: Oh, I don't think so. I think at some point in this movie, he's just like, nope, not not happening.
0: Um, I think he did like. When they were shooting the scenes, he would do a take in an accent and the rest of them <laughs> not. And it's just like, it's this weird stitched together thing. Um, I love that
1: movie.
0: Uh, yeah, that movie rules. It's amazing. Okay, another Kevin Costner movie. Um so you've got three. You've got one oh, he's Oh, um, he's, uh, he's in a superhero movie. He's in Man of Steel. Man of Steel.
1: I would have absolutely guessed Man of Steel. It is not Man of Steel. So your remaining oh. year, this might give it to you. Is
0: 1997. Okay, 97. So post Titanic, this is when the movies are abysmal. Uh, I mean, like guess movies are never really good. So that's Afterwater World. It's too soon for Message in a Box. It's got to be The Postman? It's The Postman. Yep. Why is it The Postman? Famous on disaster,
1: there? The Postman, that he directed and starred in. And of course, who's the second lead in The Postman? Oh, I, I was thinking of the third lead, but, like, the second lead is also kind of funny. But I'm thinking mostly of the third lead.
0: Who? Lorenz Tate. Ah, uh, yes. The cast for the Postman Costner insane. is on the... Yeah, the Postman, what the hell is going on? Um, Costner,
1: Will Patton, Lorenz Tate, Olivia Williams, Tom Petty, Giovanni Jesus. Ribisi, Peggy Lipton... Weird. Super weird.
0: Kevin Costner's on the blank check bracket, and I don't think people are paying attention because I don't know if he won the first draft no, at this point. He got beat by Tom Hooper by six Guys. by six votes, but
1: they've postponed slash maybe are gonna cancel the Razzies this year. So Tom Hooper hasn't won oh, a Razzie yet. So he's ineligible. This whole podcast is weirdly going to become like Blank Check Shadow Podcast where we follow the bracket. Um I'm fascinated to see what they do with Until that.
0: Until the bracket is over. Guys, if you're not following the Blank Check bracket, first of all, why aren't you listening to Blank Check but follow second them of all, to participate in the bracket. Yep. I just tweeted today about what was today. Oh, today is Francis Ford Coppola and uh Bob Fosse, which is like of course you would want to do Bob Fosse because we don't need more podcasts about the the Godfather, but there can never be enough podcast episodes about Bramps. That's actually that's, 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 that's my
1: point. That's say. my point. That's why you gotta go Coppola.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's how I voted, and I, I would love Fosse. Um anyway, Joseph, it's your turn. Alright. Are you there? I am. Okay. I'm ready. So,
1: <laughs> Sorry. What if I like ran away? Just like no.
0: <laughs> Guys, Joe decided um that he does not uh have the stomach for what I'm about to do oh, to God. him. Uh because of uh, Bonfire of the Vanities' uh, misfire at the Razzies, if you can put uh-huh. it that way, it was defeated by one Miss Bo Derek in Ghost. Can't do it, Joseph. Oh. I am challenging you with Bo Derek. This is bad.
1: I, I'm very, very ignorant of Bo Derek's filmography. Um, I mean, ten. No. Or, all right, I give up. I genuinely give up. <laughs>
0: These are the, uh, you should be able to know these. These are noteworthy Bo Derek. The
1: only other movie that I know Bo Derek is in is Tommy Boy.
0: Yes, Tommy Jesus Boy. You Christ. know Bo Derek is in another movie. Do I? Yes.
1: I don't think I do. What have we been talking about? Oh, Ghosts Can't Do It? Ghosts Can't. Do Jesus it is on Christ. there and 10 is not. That's so oh. dumb.
0: Um, Also, while you're trying to think of the other two answers, you know that these movies exist. They are they are famous disaster movies, not like not like I was going to say not like like uh, horrible movies. I mean,
1: uh, I genuinely don't know. I genuinely am up a creek about this. I'm so sorry. I feel so. Inadequate about not knowing.
0: I, I will come up with another answer for you then, and we can do that. The other movies are Bolero. I don't even which know I what that is. is. Another Razzie movie. Um, and then there is also Tarzan the Ape Man. Wow! Can we also talk about her character name in Ghosts? Can't do it. Is Katie O'Dare Scott? Not like fancy O'Dare. O apostrophe D-A-R-E. <laughs> As
1: in like you dare me to kill this guy, so my husband can be. Oh re- O'Dare.
0: Um, Jesus. like my uh, obsession with different Irish drag queen names, like patio furniture, <laughs> Karen O'Virus. Um... Oh no! All right, hold on. I'm going to come up with someone else for you. All right. Oh, I know what I'm going to give you. So, uh, there was lots of casting disputes with this movie and people thinking people were miscast, especially Tom Hanks. One of the people that Tom Hanks was uh original or one of the people that was originally thought to be cast before Tom Hanks was Steve Martin. Yes. I will give you Steve Martin to be nice.
1: Oh, okay. This is interesting. And it's all movies.
0: Steve so Though maybe this isn't as nice as I Steve thought.
1: Steve Martin's interesting movie. because a lot of his most like notable and respectable movies were in the 80s, and I would think the IMDb game would skew more towards the 90s and 2000s. Like I feel like Father of the Bride's got to be one of them.
0: No. Jesus. To move things along, I'm going to give you an extra hint because Bo Derek was just evil to do to you. Um, well, let me try. Let me save the hint okay, for for okay, okay, okay. Um, because I want to guess.
1: Bringing down the house.
0: No. I will give you two other wrong answers besides this. So, all of his known fours, he's actually billed for writing. Interesting. Even though he stars in all of them.
1: Is, did he write Roxanne?
0: Roxanne. Okay. Um, did he write
1: writing and acting? Is Shop Girl one of them? No. Okay, good. Um, I would not want it to be Shop Girl.
0: All of me? Shout out to our Shop Girl episode. No, not all of them. All me. right, what are the years? Uh 1991, 1979 and 2006. Is 1991 LA Story? It is LA Story. What are the other two years? 79 and 2006. Wow, that is a wide span. Yeah, usually you don't get that wide of a range for a note. 2006? Mm-hmm. So it's not even
1: it's complicated. Um All right. Is 2006 one of the ones that he wrote?
0: Yes, I did not know that he wrote this movie, but yes, he starred in and wrote this movie. You should be able to get 1979.
1: I mean, 1979 is The Jerk. It's The Jerk. Okay.
0: Um, the 2006 movie stars, like, a huge pop star, or a huge musician. Oh. Multi-hyphenate.
1: Multi-hyphenate. Huge musician.
0: Um, in
1: 2006,
0: there's also a Broadway musician in this movie.
1: Oh, golly. Okay.
0: Um, or a Broadway performer, singer, not multi-hyphenate, right?
1: Multi-hyphenate, right. but like not Beyonce. Not yet. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. In 2006, he's not in dream girls.
0: No. But it is Beyoncé.
1: Really? All right, what else is she in in 2006? Um, and it's not animated.
0: It's not animated. It's a remake. Um, And it's film, so it's not
1: uh, Carmen, a hip-hopera. What if Steve Martin no. was in <laughs> Carmen, hip-hopera? What if Steve Martin a hip starred opera?
0: and wrote Carmen, a hip-hopera?
1: I would be so incredibly... Jazz for that um
0: uh, the score for Carmen a hip opera was originally composed on a banjo
1: (laughs) what if that were true I would love that does he
0: play a banjo is it a banjo it is
1: a banjo um alright no so 2006 I'm gonna get this it is um
0: it's a remake he is the uh, uh it's there was actually a sequel to this I don't know how they got away with a sequel this must have made a lot of money um yeah, I mean, it made it budget its budget back. It almost made hundred million dollars. Um, and
1: he wrote the the remake adaptation. Oh, um, God! Really, the Pink Panther?
0: The Pink Panther. <sighs> That's noted Beyonce vehicle. The Pink Panther.
1: She has utterly scrubbed that from her history. Like nobody remembers that she was in the Pink Panther.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: That's crazy. Wild. Who's the Broadway person?
0: Kristen Chenoweth is in that movie, which ah, is less surprising. Okay.
1: That's a that's a very strange IMDB for Steve Martin. With that many choices, I mean who,
0: it's, a, it's d- deeply weird. It's gotta just be because there is writing credits too. I
1: would if I were doing Steve Martin's known for, it would be Father of the Bride. It would be probably The Jerk, yes. Um Oh, what would the other two be? I wonder in terms of like the things that he's like actually the most known for. Like I might do something like house sitter, which I think is like love house perfectly quintessential. I love that movie. That's it. That's Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn. And it is the same year as sister act. And the two of those movies I had on the same VHS and I watched them all all the time it was
0: i mean planes trains and automobiles yes of course
1: that's exactly or dirty rotten scoundrels absolutely something like that
0: parenthood which people forget that the tv show is from the movie it is like based off of the movie right it's ron howard
1: yeah oh yeah like like in terms of uh, like sort of vague broad strokes the movie like the tv show you know doesn't stick with the the character parameters of the movie at all but like yeah it's the same general concept for sure
0: yeah Oh, so weird. Oy. Anyway. All right. I think that is our episode. If you want more of this had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this had You should also follow our Twitter account at Had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, please tell our listeners where they can find more of you. So
1: long as I am still alive and kicking, I am on Twitter at Joe Reed Read is spelled R E I D. I'm also on Letterboxd Joe Reed R E I D there as well. And you know, hopefully with this quarantine stuff happening um i'll have more time to watch movies and log them on my letterbox so let's all get through this together and keep ourselves socially distant and stop going to restaurants and bars and fucking figure this thing out
0: yeah stay home I am on Twitter at ChrisVFile, that's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Five Star Review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so please incite our vanity with a bonfire of kind uh-huh. words. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. I should
1: probably throw in a disclaimer here that when this episode releases in two weeks or whenever, uh, that advice might not be current, so like obey your local whatever that's Obey the yeah. Yes. Listen to science. Bye.
0: Yes. Hey.